Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. We're in Joshua chapter 13. Look at Joshua 13, 29. And to half the tribe of Manasseh, that is to half the tribe of Manasseh's descendants by their clans, Moses gave this as their territory. From Mahanaim through all Bashan, all the kingdom of King Og of Bashan, including all of Jer's villages that are in Bashan, 60 cities. But half of Gilead and Og's royal cities in Bashan, Ashtaroth and Adre, are for the descendants of Machir, son of Manasseh. That is, half the descendants of Machir by their clans. These were the portions Moses gave them on the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan east of Jericho. Let's stop right here and look at this. This, this is at the end of the book of Numbers. The narrative of the book of Numbers ends right here on the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan east of the Jericho. Here's, uh, here's what that is on the map. Jericho is right here. And then the Jordan River is right up the middle. This is where God promised Joshua that he would be with him as he was with Moses and where the, the, the Jordan River is miraculously parted for the Israelites to, to cross in a redux version of the baptism of the first generation of Israelites in the Red Sea. This is, um, this is where God spoke through Moses in this promise and that's where the book of Numbers ends and where the book of Joshua begins. Now, we've just seen the allocation for Manasseh. There's East Manasseh over here. It forms the northern border of Israel and the northeast corner of the border of Israel and the eastern border of Israel. It's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Chinnereth at some points in the book of Joshua. And then right at the southern, uh, right at the southern shore of the Sea of Galilee, it's kind of splinters off. And then the land allocated to the tribe of Jad, uh, Gad sort of like frames uh, Manasseh. Then on the western coast of the Jordan River, here's the rest of Manasseh. Now, because it's on the western side of the Jordan River, it's in the land that would traditionally be called Canaan. So half of Manasseh gets an inheritance on in the land of Canaan, and then half the tribe of Manasseh gets uh, gets tri uh, uh, tribal lands that are on the other side. Now, you'll notice what's missing here. We see these allocations for Asher, Naphtali, Zebulun, Issachar, Manasseh, and Manasseh again, Gad, Reuben, Ephraim, Dan, Benjamin, Judah, Simeon, but there's no Levi. What's wrong with Levi? He's a good maker of genes, but he doesn't get any land. It's because, verse 33, Moses did not give a portion to the tribe of Levi. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance, just as he had promised them. This was promised a long time ago. Here's the book of Numbers. Remember, the book of Numbers was not written by Joshua. It's written by the Holy Spirit through Moses, Joshua's mentor and predecessor. Command the Israelites to give cities out of their hereditary property for the Levites to live in uh, and pasture lands around the cities. The cities will be for them to live in and their pasture lands will be for their herds, flocks, and their other animals. The pasture lands of the cities you are to give the Levites will extend from the city wall 500 yards on every side. Measure a thousand yards outside the city for the east side, a thousand yards for the south side, a thousand yards for the west side, and a thousand yards for the north side with the city in the center. This will belong to them as pasture lands for their cities. So this was prescribed long before they actually took the promised land. It's going to take a, it's going to take a whole generation. It's going to take decades before it's actually realized here in the book of Joshua. So man, like Manasseh gets two allocations and Levi gets none, but this was not a shock to anybody. This was something that was prescribed uh, by God 
through Moses, and now it's being uh, it's being distributed here in the book of Joshua. Uh, in our curriculum this week, you'll see that they're using the casting of lots to determine who gets what, but it's not just a random land grab by the roll of a dice. This is the sovereign hand of God at work. The casting of lots is a practice that would end in uh, the uh, in the beginning of the book of Acts when they were trying to find someone who could step in and replace Judas as an apostle. And they find Matthias. He had been there since the baptism of Jesus, kind of since the very beginning of it all. And they go from there, but there's never again a casting of lots. And I believe it's because what would come thereafter was the descent of the Holy Spirit. And so now we determine the will of God by way of his spirit, by way of his word. His spirit gave us the word and the word is complete and perfect. So we no longer determine God's will by a rolling dice. God was sovereign over it. And if you were with us in our study of the book of Esther, you know that uh, all the dice belong to God anyway. God had made this promise to the Levites, and it's also a challenge. Okay, it's also a challenge for them. The first priest that we ever really see is Melchizedek. And according to the book of Hebrews, he was not from the tribe of Levi. It's before the tribe of Levi even existed. All right, Levi's great-great-grandfather was the one who would make an offering to this guy named Melchizedek. The reason the author of Hebrews is bringing up Melchizedek is to say that Jesus is the great high priest for all time, even though he's not descended from the tribe of Levi. But guess what? Melchizedek wasn't from the tribe of Levi either, and Abraham made an offering to him. So obviously his bona fides as a priest are solid. This, this priesthood, as we know it in the book of Joshua, would have its roots in Moses' brother, Aaron. Aaron's son, Eleazar, is the priest who's a contemporary of this generation of Israel, along with Joshua and Caleb. And this priesthood would be dispersed among the people. It's going to be a few generations before uh, we go through the whole era of the book of Judges, and then we enter into you know Samuel's ministry and the monarchical era of Israel begins. Saul's the first king, and then David, and then David's son Solomon, and then thereupon Solomon's uh, takeover, like uh, uh, ascendant, ascendancy to the throne. It splits between Israel and Judah, and then finally the temple is built in Jerusalem, and that's where all of the worship practices would take place. That's where you had to go for Pentecost, for Passover, and things like that. But at this point, Israel's worship is sort of based out of Shiloh, the city of Shiloh, and the Levites are to be scattered among all the tribes. So wherever you live, you've got some Levites there. And the Levites were largely dependent upon the obedience of the people of Israel. Now, as a New Testament pastor myself, I can see the obvious differences. First of all, that's Old Covenant. This is New Covenant. I'm not going to lead people in sacrifices that presuppose the Messiah hasn't come yet, because to do so would be to deny Christ. I am not at all descended from the tribe of Levi, but neither were the neither were the seven uh, you know priests who were dispatched in the book of Acts. And go figure. It's the New Testament. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Moreover, the role of a pastor, true to its name, is that of a shepherd, under, as an under-shepherd under the chief shepherd who is Jesus. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we see something similar for New Testament believers, though. We're to give what is in our hearts to give. If God doesn't lay a specific number on your heart for how you give to your church, tithing is a great place to start, but don't just stop there. Consider Micah 3.10. We're not going to rob God. Consider Micah 1.8. We're not going to just give what's really easy out of our overflow to be able to give. Rather, you at least tithe. 
and you give generously, and then you're blessed by God when you do. See First Corinthians chapter nine. We had a uh, we we studied this book in our series Into the Fray. If you want to go study that in greater detail, giving to God uh, is an incredibly vital part of how the church functions. It was prescribed by God through Paul, who was himself bivocational, but insisted that churches set up a funding infrastructure to support long-term full-time pastors. Some modern-day church planters are bivocational. That's a good thing, especially if you're in an area like this one where it's really expensive. Okay, I've got my share of side hustles because we just need it. It's crazy expensive here. But if you go to a church that has a full-time pastor, I don't want you to think that makes you entitled to all of his time 24-7. Now, I know that all members of the Redemption Church here in this uh, are like, well, yeah, Jesse, we don't expect that of you. First of all, we already kind of do it. People show up at my house all the time. Like my house is sort of like home base for uh, for the Redemption Church in many ways. But uh, fortunately, the people of the Redemption Church understand that it's not my job to do all the ministry. The Holy Spirit has given us gifts, and then we the body of Christ function together this way. I do what I can, all right? I'll make hospital visits. I do a lot of counseling, but I can only do so much. My job is to equip the saints for works of ministry. So there's not just one or two ministers at the Redemption Church. There's more than just me and Pastor Mike. Every member is a minister, and that applies to you at your church as well. Your pastor is the one who preaches the gospel, and according to 1 Corinthians 9, as a New Testament sort of iteration of what began with the Levites, he is dependent upon the people of God and their obedience to God. The one who preaches the gospel should make his living by the gospel. That's 1 Corinthians 9. I've already made provision for bivocational pastors. But his job is not to minister to you every time you need him. His job is to equip you to go and do ministry. I say this because... It is a crippling growth killer for churches everywhere that just don't get this. This is so important for the growth of the kingdom of God. You don't pay country club dues to a church to fund your pastor's salary. You give an offering to God. Your pastor then makes his living by equipping you to do ministry doesn't mean that he's off the hook and he never has to visit the hospital, never has to do premarital counseling or grief counseling or officiate weddings or funerals or actually go feed the homeless himself. It, it doesn't put him off the hook for any of that. But if your whole church growth is planned upon the ability of one man, you can expect your church to be a really awesome church for 12 people because that's the maximum number of people that one man can minister to. Again, I'm not, I, the Redemption Church seems to get this as far as I can tell, and I'm really, really grateful for it. But I want to bless other churches because we're looking at the text. We see this prescription for the Levites, and we see that they're dependent upon the obedience of the people of God. But I see a New Testament iteration that is often forsaken in this. The one thing, the thing I want to close with is just pointing out the long time that had to pass between here, the book of Numbers, where it was first prescribed on the plains of Moab, that the Levites would have cities to live in among all the clans. And then here, Joshua chapter 13, you had to go through decades. We've just seen how Caleb said it had been, uh, it had been, what, 40 years, 45 years, <laughs> 45 years since he first stood and said, yes, we can take the land. And then here we are now, and it's finally time to allocate the land to everybody. It's 45 years. It's a long time. That's a long time. 
As we close, not only would you just pray for your pastor, see to it that you're giving to your church, and if your if your pastor is, uh, especially if your pastor is full time, would you see to it that he's he's paid well, that his kids aren't hungry, that he's not going into debt, that he's able to actually save a thing or two for retirement? Okay, it's it's ordained by God in First Timothy five that he's worthy of a double honor if he labors at preaching and teaching, and it's ordained by God in First Corinthians nine that he should make his living by the gospel if he's full time. Uh, but also, would you consider as we close just the time it took between this promise and its fulfillment? Go before the Lord and proclaim to God your commitment to be patient as He fulfills His promises in His due time. He is faithful, faithful, faithful to always do what He said He would do. 